When I was a kid, the, the community of Terry Hill was set to build this uh, playground for kids, and the playground was called Terry Hill Timbers. And they needed volunteer labor to build this, this playground, so dad and mom and I went to help out. And so we got there in the morning, and Dad and I were going to work together. I'm not sure where Mom went to, but she was working there too. And, and so we received instructions to install this fireman pole in this certain area. And Fireman pole, obviously, pretty awesome for kids to slide down, so it was good that they, they had this. And, and I think we, we showed up, and I think we worked several hours in the morning there, and we worked hard. And we ended up finding out that we were sadly misdirected. We built the fireman pole in the wrong place. All right. So our work was useless. We, we spent all that time in vain, and I'm, I'm not sure what happened, uh, who ended up tearing it out, uh, who ended up moving it, because honestly, we just left. We, we were kind of discouraged by that. We wanted to contribute. We wanted to help. I, I don't know, maybe dad or mom talked to someone and said we were leaving. We left. We're like, this is ridiculous. So we, we were out of there. Imagine doing something only to find out that it was completely pointless. Completely pointless. Useless. In fact, what you did was actually negative work. It was creating more work for someone else. That would be really frustrating. When you do something, you want it to be meaningful. You want it to be useful. You want it to contribute in some way. It's very rewarding when we know that something is meaningful, that our work is meaningful, that we are contributing, that it benefits someone else. Please listen and think about this. There is a way to worship God that is completely worthless. It's empty, it's useless, it's pointless, it has no value, and it is vain. It actually has negative effects. Imagine worshiping God and finding out that the way you were worshiping God was vain and empty. We don't want that. God is too glorious for us to give him vain worship. He deserves true worship from our heart. He deserves all of our love. And people who love God, they want to make sure to give God worship that magnifies Him, that glorifies Him, that pleases Him. And today, we're going to find out how to avoid vain worship. I think it will be helpful to you in how to avoid that. Let me me review the last two weeks and then show you why today is so important. Two weeks ago, we saw that God is infinitely great. Therefore, He is the only acceptable and He is the only logical object of our worship. True worship begins with seeing clearly the greatness of God. Last week, we saw how to magnify God then as a true worshiper. We saw that true worship is spirit-led, Bible-saturated, faith-filled concentration on and enjoyment of the one triune God in the heart and mind, which is inevitably expressed in committed service and communicative reverence. That's what we must do as the people of God. That's the kind of worship that we must have. We must worship God in spirit and truth. We must serve God. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate worship leader. So he must sovereignly lead us into worship by his grace and strength. True worship is heart and mind and will and body directed 
to God. All of us directed at all of God. And when our worship is weak and when our worship is frail and when our worship is bland and anemic, it is the gracious strength of the Lord that will pull us out of the funk and lift us up and invigorate our worship. We ended last week with the best advice anyone could possibly receive. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. But as we look to Christ, we must also avoid vain worship. So here's why today is important. God is supremely great and deserves true worship. God does not accept vain worship because vain worship belittles his infinite glory, and he doesn't like that. So as the people of God, we want to steer clear of worshiping God in any way, even suggesting that God be belittled and that he is not magnificent and great. Today, we're not talking about vain worship in the sense of worshiping false idols or false gods. That would be one way to think of vain worship, but today we're talking about worshiping the one true God in any way that demeans his glory and displeases him. That's the kind of vain worship we're talking about. So here is what I hope to show you from Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Listen closely. We worship God in vain when we make our ideas, preferences, and traditions more important than or equal to, in worship, the commandments of God. Did you get that? Let me say it again. We worship God in vain when we make our ideas, preferences, and traditions more important or equal in worship than the commandments of God. Our focus today is understanding vain worship, vain worship, and then knowing how to avoid vain worship. Pretty simple concept. It will serve you well if you study this week uh, verses 10 I'm sorry, do I have it? Yep, 10 through 20. And then another passage, Mark 7, 1 through 23. So study that on your own. I think it's really going to help you uh, fill fill out this sermon. It's listed at the top of your bulletin inserts. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus to pick a fight about tradition. Pharisees were religious and political leaders. They were experts and scholars, and they taught God's word. They were powerful. They controlled the tabernacle. They were well-respected and were fanatical, I mean, out of their minds about the law and and obeying Jewish law and being ceremonially clean. Scribes were also religious leaders and experts specially trained in the law. They were skilled at reading and writing the law, and they meticulously... They paid careful attention to detail as they copied and preserved and taught God's law. These guys were smart. They were political too. And most scribes were Pharisees. Verse 1 says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So they traveled around 90 miles to come and to pick a fight with Jesus about tradition. These guys were motivated. Verse 2, they asked Jesus, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. They were angry. They were upset at what they saw. A little backstory is helpful here. Pharisees and scribes were very committed to the written law, the Torah or the Old Testament. 
but they were also equally committed, and that's important to know, equally committed to the oral law, which was a compilation of Old Testament interpretations passed down from previous generations of Jewish elders. That's what was meant by the tradition of the elders. The oral law was a type of commentary, if you will, on Scripture. I read that, quote, somewhere in its development, the view arose that the oral law itself had been given by God to Moses and thus shared divine authority with the scriptures. Can you see a problem with that? The Pharisees and scribes put the oral law, which is man's ideas, on the same level as scripture, which is God's ideas. They added man's ideas to God's ideas, which ultimately undermines the authority of God's ideas. A modern-day example of this is Roman Catholicism, which, to be fair, holds tradition, Scripture, and their magisterium, which is the official teaching of the Roman Catholicism, as equally authoritative. All of those are equally authoritative, not Scripture alone. In fact, many churches and cults do this today. They exchange God's word for some leader's word, some guru. That's what the Pharisees and scribes did. They actually broke God's word to uphold their tradition, which meant their tradition was actually more important than God's word. So where did this washing your hands before eating law come from? In Exodus 30, this is biblical, the priests washed their hands and feet as they were going into the tabernacle, going near the altar, as they were offering up food offerings. God commanded that in Exodus 30. But in time, elders added to God's commandments. They expanded it to include all of Israel, and they expanded it to actually be in the moments before you were going to eat, not just in the tabernacle, but outside of that. Well, God didn't say that, but it became religious tradition. And then the tradition of the elders became commonly practiced and entrenched, and thus it it all of a sudden held spiritual value for the people. Instead of understanding and applying Exodus 30 rightly as God intended it, they distorted God's word by adding burdensome rules for the people, and this religious system that they created was also a way, catch this, for them to feel good about themselves. And to teach others how to feel good about themselves. Just follow these rules and you're righteous. Just follow these set rules that we've determined and you're right with God. You're accepted by God. Their invented rules and traditions masked the sin in their hearts and distracted people from loving and worshiping God. Instead, they directed people away from God. They they directed people to not depend on God's grace, but to depend on what they could do for themselves. They created a religion void of the gospel and one filled with vain worship. Worship driven by tradition is vain because it makes tradition the heartbeat of the worship instead of Jesus Christ. Vain worship puts human ideas, human preferences, and human traditions in the place of Christ, and that, my friends, is evil. Fiddler on the Roof is one of my favorite musicals. 
From a musical standpoint, it is brilliant. Genius. I love it. I own it. I love it. I love it. There are some good principles in the film like religious fidelity or commitment or service to God or humor. Tevya is awesome. Uh, Love, marriage, the leadership of the father in the home. But at the end of the day, Fiddler on the Roof is tragic and sad and godless. There is no gospel in Fiddler on the Roof. The film is about tradition and not truth. Knowing the truth and obeying God as he commands is is not important in the film. Only following rules that were created sometime in the past by someone is important. Now, at the beginning, Tevya says this. I'm going to do the accent. This is fun. Here in Anatevka. That's not bad. Come on. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work, how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition, and because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. My friends, do you understand how dangerous and evil that is? How do we know who we are? How do we know what God expects us? Not tradition. Not what a rabbi says, not what a pastor says, not what a priest says. We know who we are and we know what God expects us to do from God's word alone. It is sola scriptura. It is God's word alone. When tradition is our rule, we end up breaking God's commands. Pharisees and scribes broke God's commands for the sake of their tradition. This is how powerful tradition can be. Jesus didn't defend his disciples. He just turned the whole thing on the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus was a masterful teacher. Verse 3, he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus nailed it. He nailed it. Why were they disobeying God? They were disobeying God to uphold their tradition. Breaking God's commands for the sake of their tradition. And notice that Jesus is not saying it's the elders' tradition. He's saying it is their tradition. Because they had taken the elders' tradition and they had made it their own. They had accepted it. It was theirs. They were responsible. Tradition was so important to them that they were willing to disobey God in order to preserve it. Jesus said in verse 6 that for the sake of their tradition, they made void the word of God. They were hypocrites. They thought they loved the law of God. They were the experts. Everybody knew that they knew the law of God, but they didn't love the law of God because they put their tradition above the law of God. Jesus illustrated their hypocrisy, verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Jesus was pulling from multiple Old Testament scriptures there. The Pharisees and scribes, they knew those verses. They knew where he was pulling this from. And Jesus continued, verse 5. But you say, 
If anyone tells his father or his mother what you have, would have uh, gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. And I love what Jesus is doing there. For God commanded, but you say. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. What Jesus was referring to in verse 5 was called Corbin. Commentator Charles Blomberg explained Corbin like this. The Corbin practice in view was that of pledging money or other material resources to the temple to be paid upon one's death. These funds could therefore not be transferred to anyone else, but could still be used for one's own benefit while one was still alive, end quote. So people uh, could pledge money or possessions to God, to the temple, uh, but if their aging parents needed help, they couldn't take that pledge and then help out their, their parents. If you pledged it, it was done. It's going to the temple. And you didn't need to honor your aging parents with it. And the late Bible scholar uh, T.W. Manson explained something so helpful. I love when you read something and it just gets down in there and it digs into the heart of it and you're like, oh my goodness, yes. Listen to this quote. A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. What if a rich man hated his parents? Oh, man, just give your wealth to God. Get reward. You're doing the good thing. God wants this. And so you can feel good about dishonoring your parents if you give it to the temple. You see, these Pharisees and scribes very, uh, very cunningly created a loophole in God's word and his commands But Corbin couldn't cover the sin of the heart. Corbin wasn't God's idea. Corbin was a tradition spawned from the sinful heart of man, a tradition that belittled the glory of God by failing to recognize the supremacy of the word of God. Vain worship is is built on things just like that. Many Pharisees and scribes worship God in vain. Verses 8 and 9 If you read them, they are quite an indictment upon the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus said, starting in verse 7, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That comes from Isaiah 29, which was written about 700 years beforehand. The Pharisees and scribes uh, fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, huge indictment, and here are four simple things, and I want you to catch these from verses 8 and 9, that describe the Pharisees, that describe the, the scribes, and it describes anyone else who worships God in vain. People worship God in vain when, number one, they honor God with their words. They honor God with their words. Vain worship can sound great. It can be filled with scripture and sound biblical. It can be enthusiastic. It can be eloquent. It can appear like it glorifies God. But similar to flattery, though vain worship can sound good, it's insincere and it's self-seeking. People worship God in vain. Number two, when they do religious acts of worship. 
Vain worship can look good from the outside. It looks very, very pious. It can look like obedience to God. It can look devout to God. It can accomplish practical good for others. It can appear exemplary like the Pharisees and scribes. But vain worship is cunning because it can do the same acts as true worship, but void of all the essential elements to make it true, vibrant, alive worship. The last two things make all the difference. People worship God in vain when, number three, their heart is far from God. Bingo. This is it. God is not the heartbeat of vain worship. No one truly worships God when their heart is a billion miles away from God. James 4.8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Any worship that does not seek to draw near to the heart of God is vain worship, empty worship, useless worship, because God is not the object that we're trying to get close to. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if your heart is far from God, that means that your treasure is far from God. And if your treasure is far from God, it means that God is not your treasure. And if God is not your treasure, it means you are worshiping something else. Lip service and empty ritual doesn't please God ever. All of you directed at all of God pleases God. The last thing is this. People worship God in vain when, number four, they teach man-made rules above God's commands. You see, all Scripture is breathed out by God, not breathed out by man. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the oral tradition was the tradition of the elders. That was someone's own interpretation of what God had said. It was produced by the will of man, and they were equating it with the will of God. Vain worship puts man's words into the mouth of God. That's evil. And that is very prevalent in Lancaster County. Can righteousness be measured by the style of suit or whether we have zippers or buttons? Are we more holy because of a certain kind of facial hair or haircut? Are we more acceptable to God because of the type of wheels on our tractor? Has God said any of these things? Teaching man-made rules above the commandments of God demeans God, nullifies grace, and makes righteousness attainable by following a few rules invented Amen. That's not gospel, my friends. That's cultish. The Pharisees and scribes were teaching people away from God, and people still do this today when they take their own ideas, their own preferences, and their own traditions and say that they originate with God. 
or at least treat them as if they originated with God. So let's be honest. If we put our own ideas and our own preferences and our own traditions above God's word, we are basically saying, I am God. I am God. I am the authority on life and truth. And you must worship God the way that I say you must worship God. Oh, that's evil. That is evil. Vain worship is utter wickedness. It leads people away from God, and it, and it masquerades as righteousness. It masquerades as, I'm a good person. And we must avoid this vain worship at all costs. There is only one thing that should shape our worship, God's holy word. Some call this the regulative principle, which means our worship should only include what God commands in the Bible or what can be deduced from the Bible. God's word is our worship guide, not what we think or what we want. God's word is our worship guide, not culture, not tradition, not preference, not innovation, not anything other than God's word. Those who love God want to worship God in a way that pleases Him, so they worship Him in spirit and in truth, not in man-made tradition and innovation. You know, and there is something just very popular in the church in America right now. It's we have to be cutting edge. We have to be, you know, innovative. We've got to start introducing things into the church that are part of pagan society so that we can appeal to the people who reject God. How about we be holy? How about we actually uphold the word of God and say it's what God says, not what you or I say? How about we start there? So many churches need to bow before God and repent of their paganism inside of the church. We want our worship to please God. So we got to listen to what God says. What is Matthew 15, 1 through 9 saying? What do we walk away from here thinking? People worship God in vain when they honor him with their words and they do all kinds of religious acts of worship while their heart is far from God and they value and teach man-made rules above God's commandments. That's what's happening. And that kind of worship belittles God and is completely empty, useless, worthless, pointless, without any value and vain. I wish we could take time to closely look at two passages, but just jot them down, study them on your own this week, read over them, Amos 5, Amos 5, and Isaiah 1. Amos 5 and Isaiah 1, check them out sometime. God used very strong language um, regarding the worship of his people. He rejected Israel's worship because they were ignoring his commandments and not seeking and living for him. In Isaiah 1, God wasn't only concerned about Israel going through religious motions without any heart. He was concerned about something else. This is so interesting, about introducing things into that worship that God had not commanded in his word. Gary V. Smith commented on this, quote, not only did Isaiah oppose meaningless Hebrew ritual, I take that to mean that God God had commanded the Hebrews to worship this way, and they were just as meaningless to them. He also opposed the repetitious pagan ritual that had infiltrated and polluted Hebrew worship. End of quote. Israel had no heart for God. That was a serious problem, but they had also introduced man-made rituals into their worship of God, and God hated it. He rejected it. Not good enough. And this is what we need to hear. God hates 
profane worship. He hates it. He loathes it. He will not accept it. And this is why we must avoid it. You see, friends, you and I, we love God. We love Him. He's everything to us. And we want our worship to please Him, to magnify Him, to glorify Him, because we want God to look great. So anything that we take away from what makes God look great, we don't want to go there. We want God to accept our worship through Christ in spirit and in truth. We, we want him to bless it. Do you know that close to 4,000 churches close their doors? They die every year, not, not to reopen, unless God does something amazing. Somewhere in the life of those churches, they got sick, and they grew very weak, and they shriveled up and died. And here's why I think they died. Vain worship killed them. I think those churches died because man-made ideas, man-made preferences, man-made traditions became so entrenched in the life of the church, they became so all-important that God's word was trivialized, the gospel was forgotten, and the people just worshiped God however they wanted to worship God. We'll do it our way. Vain worship ultimately seduces people into worshiping themselves. Why do you think we see so much me-centered worship? In sermons, self-help, five quick, fast, and effective ways to do whatever. We need the supremacy of Christ. Well, how, my friends, can we, how can you avoid vain worship? The best place to start is right here. Number one, look to Christ and see and savor the glory of God. Look to Christ and see and savor the glory of God. When you see how big God is, when you see how glorious he is, and when you savor his limitless glory, you will be much less prone to worship him in vain. Christ is the image of God. So when you look to Christ in Scripture and see his supremacy and see his glory, you see the greatness of God in Christ, and his greatness compels you to worship him rightly in a way that pleases him look to christ all right another another huge help is number two know your bible know your bible god tells you this is not a secret he tells you how to worship him in his word in the bible if you depend on your own ideas well i think we should worship god this way well i think we should worship god this way i think and it's in our preferences and our traditions and we allow those to shape and form our worship you will worship god in vain because you're not taking god into consideration one of the best ways to avoid vain worship is to learn in the classroom of god here's an important one that's probably easy for us to skip over number 3 repent of your vain worship Repent. I want you to hear me loud and clear on this. Our worship is imperfect. We have elements of vain, vanity in our world. We do. And I want you to hear this. Brother and sister in Christ, on the authority of Scripture and by the supremacy of Jesus Christ, your worship is accepted by God because of Jesus. Amen? But we need to be aware of how we offer God vain worship. I think all of us have ideas, all of us have preferences, all of us have traditions that have become too important to us. We clutch them. This has to be how we do it. I think all of us are there. We need to repent 
And then take God's word more seriously. We must prioritize what God prioritizes. And I'm not necessarily saying abandon your ideas and your preferences and your traditions. I'm I'm not necessarily saying that, although some of them are probably things you need to let go of, period, and never return to them. But I am saying this, hold your ideas and preferences, hold them loosely with open hands. And make sure that you haven't equated them with God's word. Now, let's test this in ourselves. This is hard. Um, For the sake of Christ, let's do this. Are there any religious traditions that you consider more sacred than God's commandments? Or should we say equally sacred? What religious traditions are so important to you that if they stopped right now or if they changed in some way, you would be angry? You would be hurt. Now we're getting somewhere. Now, some of our traditions have become so deeply ingrained in our lives that we treat them as if God commanded them. Where in Scripture would you turn to show that God commands us to celebrate Christmas as we do? Where would you turn? Nowhere, because you're not going to find it. Um, What about Easter? Easter. And you're like, oh, pastor, don't you even touch Easter. I, I want you to tell me where I'm supposed to find. I'm not talking about the resurrection, which we celebrate every single Sunday on the Lord's Day, which is what this is to do here. I'm saying one day a year, where do you find it in Scripture? Where do you find the church calendar anywhere in Scripture? Help me. Help me. I find it odd that Christians put much emphasis on Christmas and Easter, so much so we have a category of of Christians, C and E Christians. Have you heard that, Christmas and Easter? We have a category for these people, and they put so little emphasis on the Lord's Day worship, which God does command. Acts 2, verse 42, Acts 20, verse 7, Hebrews uh, 10, verse 20. Oh, man. Some people think true worship happens when certain instruments are played or not played. Some people think true worship happens when certain hymns or songs are played or not played. Some people sacrifice truth because they want to sing certain songs, certain worship songs that are nostalgic, that they like the way that I'm, I'm going there. Oh, yeah. I'll get emails. Go ahead. Let them fly. We three kings, which is in our hymnal, I think it's 211. The magi weren't kings. There there weren't necessarily three. And they weren't likely from the Orient. Manger scenes. (laughs) You're going to think I hate Christmas. I love Christmas. All right. Manger scenes. Is yours unbiblical? I bet some of you have unbiblical manger scenes that are spreading lies about Jesus. Here's how to tell. Are the magi in your manger scene standing right by the manger? (laughs) You see, the magi never saw Jesus in the manger. They never saw him in the stable. By the time they reached Jesus, he was in a house, and he was likely two years old. Read Matthew 2. So in your house, you were proclaiming something, maybe, I don't know, I'm not accused, but I am kind of accusing, you're putting something out that spreads a lie about Jesus in your house. Hmm. 
Are our traditions so important we're willing to compromise truth because of the traditions? You see, if we don't get close to this stuff, we just go out thinking, <laughs> you've, got, you've got to unearth the vain worship in your life. I have it, you have it. Now, this is sensitive, but I want you to think through and get my point. These flags up front here are a very sensitive topic here at Jerusalem Church. In the past, these flags have led to pain and disunity in our church. Some people did or said very hurtful things in order to get their way regarding these flags. Now, whatever your view is on the flags, whatever, whatever your view is, doesn't necessarily matter. Whatever your view is, is the flag issue a preference tradition, or do you find it in Scripture? Is it a command of God? Where is it found in Scripture? So please understand what I'm saying, because I don't want you thinking, he hates Christmas and America. You know, be careful. Please don't, don't do that. Um, please understand what I'm saying, because I, I think I could be very misunderstood here. Discern my point biblically. We all have things that we hold close. Whether I've touched on yours or not, we all, we all have them. We think they're important, but are they important to God? Do we most value what God values? Of course, we need to make decisions on these things and a host of other decisions. You have to make a decision as a church. You can't just sit there, I don't, I don't know where we stand. You have to make a decision but as we discern these things and as we make decisions, we must seek to obey God's word first and always prioritize God's word above our ideas, our preferences, and our traditions. That's my point. That's what I'm trying to say here. God's word is supreme, not us. That's my point. Please don't twist it into something that I'm, that I'm not saying. God's word is our worship guide, not anything else, no matter how important it is to us. We need to make sure we worship God how he tells us to worship him and hold everything else very loosely, very graciously, very lovingly so that we don't break God's commands in order to push our perspective through. And isn't that what happens? Many people get mean-spirited about the things that they hold on to and they end up breaking God's commands to advance something that's not even in the Bible. This is very dangerous and we all are prone to do this. Number four, worship God in spirit and truth. Worship God how he wants you to worship him, and you will avoid vain worship. There are probably many more, but this is the last one. Number five, stay close to Jesus. If you abide in Christ and his word abides in you, you will avoid vain worship. If you walk by the Spirit and you don't live to gratify the desires of your flesh, you will avoid vain worship. Stay close to Jesus, and he will help you along the way to avoid vain worship. Father's Day is coming up. I'll end with this. If my family wanted to honor me as, as father, I don't think that they would serve me liver and red beets and sweet potatoes and souse for Father's Day. Uh, I don't think that they would give me a Rob Bell book or a Baltimore Ravens t-shirt or Michael Bolton's greatest album, you know, greatest hits. I wouldn't be honored by those things. My family would give me things close to my heart because they love me and they want to express that. We love God. 
We love him. And so we want to give him what honors him. And so we must study our hearts. And so we must avoid vain worshiping. We must worship him rightly because it's our privilege just to know an almighty God. And we must worship him in a way that glorifies him, in a way that, that magnifies his great name. And we do that by worshiping him according to his word. Let's pray. God, we have touched upon some very sensitive things when you start messing with Christmas. But God, we love Jesus, and he was born of a virgin, and that's amazing. And so we're going to celebrate it, but we're going to celebrate it mostly on Sundays, the Lord's Day. When the gathered church comes together all across the world and we lift up your name above all names. God, help us to prioritize the most important things. Help us to prioritize God things and not our own ideas and preferences. We all have them. We all have things that are really precious to us. And God, some of those things, they can be really good. Because tradition isn't just intrinsically evil, We all have traditions, and some of them are wonderful traditions that we should continue. But it's when those traditions, God, when we make idols out of them, when we elevate them above your word or when we equate them with your word, and that is so dangerous, you hate it. And so I pray that Jerusalem Church, when we work through issues that are preference issues and tradition issues, which we have to, every church has to, that we would be so firmly focused on the gospel and your word that we wouldn't fight and bicker and split and say nasty things and do nasty things because we want it our way. Oh God, move in this church and unify us around what's most important, which is what's in your word. Help our main worship guide be the Holy Scriptures. And then when we come to traditions and come to to the secondary things, God, that we'd be holding with open hands and that we'd try to use biblical principles and wisdom to apply those to the things that the Bible doesn't specifically tell us about. So just help us to have wisdom and discernment that comes from your spirit and your word, and may we do it for one reason alone, your great glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.